HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. So that's right. We're talking about Betty Crocker. And just like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, <laughs> maybe we could even include the Jolly Green Giant and, and the Pillsbury Doughboy, Betty Crocker is one of those faces on a product that everybody knows, but we know very little about her, so to speak. <laughs> and joining me today from Minneapolis is somebody who does know quite a bit about her. I'm talk, going to be talking to Susan Marks, and Susan is a director, um, a producer, a documentarian, and she's an author, and in fact, she wrote a book about Betty Crocker called Finding Betty Crocker. Susan, I'm really happy to have you here today so we can dispel some of those myths all about Betty Crocker. Oh, and I am happy to be here to do that with you. Thanks for having me. Well, tell me, you know, so many, a lot of people really don't know the history behind this phantom woman who is the most dedicated housewife in America. Um, (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about who created her, who she is, if a who, um, you know, about who and why she was created? Yeah, I mean, you already kind of hit on it. Everybody knows Betty. In fact, all my years of writing about Betty and even making a documentary film about Betty, um, no one's ever said to me, Betty who? <laughs> Everybody knows the name Betty Crocker, but a lot of people think she's real. Um, and this has led to a few problems for me personally. Uh, when I've been giving um, talks or I'm at a book release party or something like that, and people show up a little bit confused, thinking they're going to meet Betty Crocker. And then they meet me, and they're really disappointed. <laughs> but there's a reason why people believe she's, she's real, and that's because she was presented as real, um, as a real woman who could help you with any of your kitchen or household problems, even romance problems, starting back in 1921. Now, she was born um, of the Washburn Cosby Company, which later became General Mills, which was a big flour mill in Minneapolis, during the height of the, the milling um, boom in, in Minneapolis, which went on for about 50 years. And really, 
um, the background of Betty Crocker begins with the health and hygiene movement, which was something that was happening around the turn of the century where experts, oftentimes women and doctors as well, uh, would be going to um, communities, whether it's tenement houses or rural areas, small towns, and being an expert in an area that people wanted to know more about, like cooking and baking, um, anything health and food related. So the Washburn Crosby, Crosby Company sent out their home service staff to meet with homemakers and find out what their questions were about cooking and baking. And you might think, well, why did they have so many questions? Well, it, it was actually a really good reason why they had so many questions. And so this is around, like, 1920 technology was changing, and maybe they grew up using a coal or a wood-burning stove. Well, now they had a gas range, and they had, um, or, or electric range. And back then, units of measurement were not even standardized. So a recipe might call for a cup of flour, but really, what did that mean? Did that mean a, a teacup of flour, or did that mean something a little bit different? Right. You can imagine um, going to make a cake and... and sort of not know, you know, you know, you have all the ingredients, but you don't exactly yeah. know what order to put them in or how much of what to use. And uh, yeah, could make some yeah. big mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then add in sift or don't sift in there. And boy, you've got a lot of really good questions. And I mean, convenience foods were starting to show up around that time, too. And um, so what the Washburn Crosby um, staff learned, the, the home service staff, they learned that women had a lot of questions. And um, there was one man at the company, his name is Sam Gale, who worked in advertising. He had an in-house advertising company who thought, you know, these people who send letters to to Betty Crocker, or I'm sorry, send letters to the company, don't want a letter back from a man. Mm. Um, they want somebody. They And, and the, the concept of having a, one woman, whether she's real or not, represent a company was not actually a new concept in 1921. Um, it was uh, many other companies, especially food companies, had done this. It's just that... Um, the way they went about it with choosing this fictitious person, Betty Crocker, was actually kind of brilliant and better than everyone else, and that's why she's still around today. Where the other, the other um, characters, these trademark characters, have kind of f- faded away. But um, just really quick, one of the reasons why they chose the name Betty is because it sounded nice. Everybody knew a Betty back in that era, um, which begs the question today. Like, if we were to name a character like this, what would we name them? Would we name them Caitlin or Emily? I just don't know. <laughs> Emily that's, Crocker? That's that interesting. Work? Yeah. <laughs> and Crocker was cho- chosen um, to really honor uh, this man, William Crocker, who his family was um, really well-known in the milling, dis- milling um, dynasty in Minneapolis, and he worked for the Washington Cosby Company as a director. So they chose his surname. And they had one of the staff members um, come up with a signature, and that signature... You know, with some variations, are still used today. Huh. So it really wasn't any one person in particular answering these letters either. I mean, it was it was a staff that would take turns answering yeah. a lot of the letters. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we didn't really. I mean, we. I guess in those days, people had fantasies of what Betty might have looked like, and I'm sure they mm-hmm. you know had very homey versions of her. So no one really saw a facsimile of the fictitious Betty Crocker until a little while later. Right. right, exactly. So they so they experimented a little bit with imagery. And so they had some several unofficial portraits, which just looked like a nice lady in the 1920s with the 20s marcelled hair. And, um, you, know, you know, not a young nor old, just you know, somehow ageless and, you know, this very nice, welcoming smile. And they use this on and off again in advertising. We see this more so with the radio. Um, when she got her own radio show starting in 1924. Wait, 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 wait. She had her own radio show. Yes, 
yeah. <laughs> Who was she? <laughs> Who was she? Well, this was before radio stations were, were really connected the way they are now. And in 1924, radio was still very new. So you, um, you, you, might have an, you might have one radio station in Minneapolis, another one in New York, and you're going to have different actresses, or if no actresses are available, different home service um, staff members playing the part of Betty. So many different actresses played the part of Betty Crocker as well as home service um, staff, and they would all be penned from the same script huh. in Minneapolis. Um, but if, depending on where you were in the region, Betty would have a different accent. Oh, that's well, that's true. I didn't think about that, that she would need to yeah. appeal to that local crowd, right? That's right. So even <laughs> these small, teeny radio stations that popped up, they, you know, if, if they were part of that network at the time, and at different times where she was a part of different networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, they would have... Um, you know, maybe it might be a school teacher come in and, and read the, the Betty Crocker Home Service Program or the Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air. But going back to the portraits, you know, that they, they started to use these unofficial portraits, and then in 1936 she got her first official portrait. And this was sort of an interesting one because what they did is they took um, a, the face of basically the director of the Home Service staff and maybe some other staff members in there as well and had an artist portray the face, and it actually is a little stern by today's standards. And then, of course, it changed throughout the years. As as women changed in appearance, so did Betty Crocker. And they didn't have, I mean, there were no, you know, we couldn't do a computer-generated image in those days, so they would take a, you know, like a photo and different images, sort of do a composite sketch. And these, and that was, it wasn't really a photograph, was it? Was it, it was a painting, was it a painting? Right, right. Yeah. You're, you're right. And then they did do a composite. They had, I mean, I even found some old memo in the General Mills archives where the director of the Betty Crocker Kitchens was very upset that she, ha- she had to give her photograph because what had happened is that the artist, Nasa McMeehan, had made this, this beautiful portrait and it had been rejected. They oh. wanted her to look a little bit more like this or like that. So they, so they asked. Um, the director to send in her photo so they could look, so the artist could look at that while she was painting. Huh, interesting. You know, um, I had heard something about, um, and well, read something in your information in the background about contests or and and um, coupons that were also kind of helped generate her popularity. What what was all that right. all about? Well. There was a lot of things that, that really contributed to her popularity. Radio was number one. Um, she was on the cutting edge of radio. See that, um, listeners? Really- you hear that, listeners? Radio <laughs> contributed to her popularity. <laughs> right, and I think that's why we know who she is today, because brand alone just didn't do it. And so she was on the radio until the 1950s, and she was on television, too, starting the 19, uh, actually starting in 1950. Um, and her commercials just a little bit earlier. But, yes, there was always contests. And there were always coupons, and especially if you wrote to Betty. If you had a question for Betty Crocker, it was guaranteed that it would be answered, and in that you might get coupons or recipes. Um, and in particular, uh, that is one of the reasons why why they needed they found the need for Betty Crocker to begin with. Is they did a puzzle in a national magazine of a of a flower mill scene, and they asked people to put it together, it was a very simple puzzle, and send it to the company. Well, this is the first time they really put their their address anywhere. And it was just, you know, Washburn Cosby Company, Minneapolis, Minnesota, that was it. And sure enough, they got 
all these people wanting to claim this little pincushion prize, but they also got all these questions from people wanting to know questions like, how do you make a good one um, crust pie, or why does my cake crack at the top, or, or why does my cake fall? Um, and then this eventually led to all sorts of letters that she got. And she, you know, at the height of her popularity, and this is in the 40s, she was getting 4,000 to 5,000 letters per day. Wow. What a marketing coup that was. Yeah. <laughs> and because really we saw around big numbers, but 4,000 to 5,000 a day. In that, 1940, right. Yeah. It's amazing. Wow. Um, her, I mean, it's, it's amazing because her popularity really, I mean, Yes, we can say maybe it waned with modern products, but she's still around. I mean, people yeah. today, this generation, you know, the younger generations, they still know who she is. You still see her smiling face on the packages of cake mixes or Bisquick or whatever. Is she on, is she on Bisquick still? I don't know. Alongside well, the spoon, spoon, right? Is. Yeah. <laughs> she yeah, a- she's definitely still around today. And, and you talk to people um, like I do, and, and people say things like, oh, yes, I have my mother or my grandmother's cookbook the Betty Crocker Picture Cookbook, or, oh, my great aunt had that cookbook. Mm. I mean, everybody seems to have some sort of connection. Um, here in, in Minnesota, where I'm from, uh, almost everybody knows someone who's worked at General Mills because it's such a big company, but a lot of people here were home testers, and they tell those stories to other generations, like, oh, yes, I used to test um, recipes for Betty Crocker. <laughs> yeah, perpetuating the myth a little bit more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's great. Well, when did, what about that spoon logo? When did that first come about? Do you know when that when General Mills started using that? Yeah, they started using it in the sixties, and ah. um, in a pretty quick in the late sixties, pretty quick succession. Betty had um, three portrait changes from the late sixties to the early seventies, um, and I mean, all advertising characters and all cartoon characters do evolve over time, so it's really not all that amazing that Betty Crocker did evolve over time, but she's it's pretty fascinating to look at the evolution of her look, which it sometimes corresponded with whoever was the first lady at the time. Uh-huh. She might look a little bit more like the, the first lady. But by the late 60s, early 70s, I think the thought was, is, you know, we don't know what the role of women really is, and how to reflect that in Betty. Are we offending people? Are we alienating people? Maybe we should just go with this red spoon. <laughs> and, and so that red spoon really stuck, um, mm. and that was shorthand for Betty Crocker's portrait. And a spoon, you know, it's not a fork and it's not a knife. A spoon is a pretty gentle utensil, and it's, it's I mean, it's the first it's the first utensil any of us ever put in our mouth, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, you know, it's interesting because, as I said, it was a real marketing coup, and in fact, it spawned a product line as well as you mentioned the books, you know, the Betty Crocker cookbooks. I mean, they really they took this um, seriously, and and it it was quite a quite a product line that came of this. Oh yeah, yeah, and actually, um, she started having I mean, the name Betty Crocker brand um, convenience suit. Food starting in the, I believe it was 1947. It was split pea soup was her first convenient food. It wasn't cake mix, but cake mix followed shortly after that. And now that then, well, that's a real surprise to me that it was split pea soup and not a cake mix, right? Yes, yes. And the first cake that she came out with, she, the brand, <laughs> um, was ginger cake. Huh, interesting. Um, another um, interesting um, thing that kind of I've discovered in my research is that uh, one of the very, very popular cake mixes was devil's food. And people wrote to Betty Crocker um, asking her to just take the name out of that. It's just 
too evil sounding for them, not realizing it had a very rich history. Um, so if you if you look at any of any of the packaging even today of of Devil's Food for Betty Crocker, it's not Devil's apostrophe s. This is not the Devil's Food. They just take that apostrophe out. It's Devil's Food, huh. and I guess that makes it less evil sounding. And then it became such a popular name that nobody even thought of it after a while. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just the name of the cake, All right? Well, you know, it's interesting because we, as you say, we didn't know. They didn't want to um, have an image that would be too homey or mm-hmm. too progressive, too corporate-looking. Um, so they were always kind of middle-of-the-roading, but it was always an image. I, I think maybe a, a word that I would attach to it would be trusting. You could trust the person that they created with that image. And I think that was very important to, to homemakers when they were buying products was that trust issue. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, and they and then she felt like maybe somebody that if it weren't necessarily like the kid, the girl next door kind of person, because she never had that image. It was never like a girl next door. It was the trusted homemaker next door. You know, the dead, as I said before, the dedicated homemaker. She seemed very competent in her homemaking skills, whatever that phantom person was that they created. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. The trust was number one, and in this idea of that she's a friend to you. She's not necessarily a mother, but she could be a mother figure uh-huh. to you if you're, uh-huh. if you're very new to homemaking. Um, they, they really wanted that to come across, um, and especially in her later years when they were changing her portrait a lot, it made her much younger over the years because their market research showed that that's what women wanted was more of a friend than um, a mother figure. But early on, she was very motherly-like, and, and they... Um, they did some really interesting testing when they came out with the 1955 portrait. It was just her second official portrait. They um, got several very famous uh, or very well-known illustrators to paint their own version of Betty Crocker. Norman Rockwell was one of those illustrators. So they had all these portraits, and then they had a photograph of the actress that was playing her on television. And they did some market research, and they went out to people, and the first question they asked them was, does this face look like a face you can trust? Uh-huh. Is she more of a friend or is she more of a mother figure? Would this be someone you would like to spend some time with, invite over for coffee? And so they, for every face, they would a- answer these questions. And the face that won actually wasn't Norman Rockwell at all. Um, you would think it would be, but they went with a different look. And it's, it's actually most people's favorite Betty Crocker, and it's one where she looks very matronly. And she um, has a smile. There's several versions of it. Some she has teeth showing, some she does not. And one, she has uh, like a three-quarter profile view. And um, there was a dramatic departure from the Betty Crocker of the 1930s that had a very stern look on her face. Mm-hmm. Softened her image just a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, there, well, there were gender issues, which, you know, we can discuss uh, um, a little late, later, but there... You know, that I was surprised you said there were women in the company at the time um, when she was created in 1921, uh, women who were working at the company that and who were um, in the science, you know, doing yeah, the science and development, yeah. domestic sciences, right, homemaking, you know, home economics, uh, because that there were, um, you know, it's sort of like where what was this void that she was filling? I mean, were there no women who could become this iconic uh, homemaker for for people. Of course, there wasn't that much media. As you said, radio was very new. We didn't have television then. 
uh, we, I wasn't, I wasn't around then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Magazines were, magazines were around, but they were few and far between. Uh, pamphlets were more, it, you know, the pamphlet cooking was, yeah. uh, was very popular. So that's interesting that, that they created an image rather than really, you know, tapping a personality. Huh. Yeah, yeah, and it and it really the issue comes down to platform, and that a, a you know company like the Washburn Crosby Company and later General Mills, I mean they have a tremendous amount of money that they can put into marketing and advertising to promote um, this this fictitious w- woman to sell their flower, where. If there was just an individual out there who was an expert in this area, what platform would they really have? So certainly there were women like that that existed, and, and maybe they were part of home economic programs, or they were part of um, you know a more independent type programs that maybe they had their own radio show. And there's there's examples of that you know in history, but they just didn't have the platform that Betty had. Right. And and I don't know how, if you know the the powers that be really realized what they were doing, um, but you know real women are fallible. Um, a corporate icon is not. That's right. Um, because everything that she did, does is scripted out and decided ahead of time. And um, real women, um, uh, you know, have egos. And, <laughs> and, and sometimes, like in the case of Martha Stewart, they wind up in jail. <laughs> so by having this corporate symbol that isn't a real person but is portraying a real person, it's a very safe bet. Indeed, indeed. And safe and so successful. I mean, she has lived on for over 90 years. Well, we're yeah, going to take a yeah. short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the modern Betty Crocker. You're listening to Out in the Crowd by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, She's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Susan Marks. Uh, Susan wrote a book called Finding Betty Cracker. That's quite a search there, and she's done quite a good job for us in explaining who, who Betty Crocker really was or was not. Uh, over 90 years, this this symbol, this icon has has persisted. And Susan, um, you mentioned Martha Stewart before. I was saying today, of course, I mean, there's Martha Stewart would be the one person who I would relate to as, as being even kind of an equal in terms of homemaking icon to Betty Crocker. But Martha's a real person, as you mentioned. Uh, fallible, yeah. right. Uh, what is, is anything, has any new imagery, icon, product, marketing thing popped up that you can think of that would be, that you could relate to Betty? I can't. I think not. I think nothing compares to Betty Crocker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a couple reasons for that. And, and, and it really goes back to her history. And like I mentioned before, it was really this you know, wildly successful radio show she had. But I've interviewed a lot of women who work for the Betty Crocker Kitchens um, over the years. And, you know, these are real women 
college-educated who took their job and their role very seriously and were very genuine people and would, would talk about their time at the Betty Crocker Kitchens. They were in the 80s and 90s with tears in their eyes because the work they were doing was so ahead of its time. Um, and I'll just give you a small example of that um, and something that is important to those of us who cook and bake. But every recipe that came out of the... Betty Crocker Kitchens was triple tested, and that's a series of tests, not three tests. Mm. So it was pretty much guaranteed success. Where not all companies, and even say, I mean, you can see a recipe in in the paper on the internet or anywhere, but it hasn't necessarily been tested, and so you might not have a success with it. Um, so they were really setting people up for success and empowerment in their, in their kitchen. Now, some of that soul got lost, though. You know. It, um, Towards the late 50s, when Betty became more about convenience food, um, you know, she, she still had her good reputation to, to really carry her through. But, oh, I mean, yeah. I felt in many ways that she just kind of lost her soul after a while. Mm. And yet, I would venture to say that even today, there are people who aren't bakers, uh, or they consider themselves bakers, but they go to the grocery store and they just grab that trusted box with Betty Crocker on it, or the you know the red spoon, and they make their cake. They make their cake, but it's a convenience food, and they're making a cake out of a box mix. They trust it. They trust that yeah. this is a product that is, as you said, is tested you know over and over again. That's not going to fail. So I mean, she may have lost her soul in terms of of educating homemakers. But certainly, she didn't lose her panache of the company's panache of having a good product on the shelf. Absolutely. And then, you know, very recently, I dare say that Betty got a little bit of her soul back. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this is very recent news. So in the state that I live in, Minnesota, this is where Betty's headquarters are at General Mills. Um, we, uh, the, the Marriage Equality Act was passed, so that meant that... Um, that was just this, was, and just, this is just recently, we're talking. Yes. Yeah. So then on, on August 1st, same-sex same sex marriages became legal. And um, what what the good people at the Betty Crocker Kitchens did is they got 100% behind this. So they um, they knew that some couples were getting married right at midnight in the Capitol building. So they invited these couples ahead of time to come and test cakes out to figure out which cakes they liked best. And then they were donating all these cakes to all these weddings that took place at, at the stroke of midnight. And so they really got on board with marriage equality. And it just that kind of came out of nowhere. I thought huh. it was fantastic. New version of a great marketing coup once again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and they were um, also, um, they were at, they've been at events like the Gay Pride events that you have all over. Um, Betty Crocker and General Mills has had, you know, a presence at that at these different events. So I guess it didn't come out of nowhere completely, but, I mean, what a lovely thing. People always think about Betty Crocker and cake together. And, of course, wedding cake is, you know, probably the most important cake in a person's life. Yeah. And um, here they are on the cutting edge of having, you know, supporting marriage equality and, I think, got a little bit of that soul back, like I yeah, said. Great goodwill gesture, too. And being that, you know, the whole company is was based in Minneapolis, I mean, what a great thing to do for the state of Minnesota. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, the, but the book, now tell me, the book, the book, it, is, has it had more printings than any other cookbook? I mean, yes, it's had millions. Yeah, the, the of, Betty Crocker Picture Cookbook, yes. I mean, there's been uh, hundreds, I don't want to say thousands, but hundreds of Betty Crocker Cookbooks. But um, really, in 1950, um, they came out with what was 
basically two decades of work. And these, you know, incredible recipes that were tested and retested, and they um, put them together in such a way that you didn't have to know a lot about cooking and baking to have success. And they and they laid it out in a way that had never been laid out before. A, a cookbook hadn't um, as of the 1950s, and many have since copied it. But um, it has been re-edited and retooled and reissued. And then um, I want to say about 10 years ago or so, they even reissued the original one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they keep re- they, they keep making copies of it. So people... I mean, believe me, people were thrilled out of their mind because that was the one that they remembered from their childhood or they, right. their mom remembered from her childhood. I mean, it was really this connection that, you know, a lot of women had certain cookbooks, like um, uh, a Good Housekeeping Cookbook or a Better Homes and Garden Cookbook, mm-hmm. and a Betty Crocker Cookbook. It just, it, it was the most popular gift at showers. Oh, it was, it, it was a bride's. It was all you know. It was a bride's first cookbook. Yeah. You know, uh, and yeah. next, and then later, later years, next to you know, uh, Joy of Cooking, perhaps. But for yeah. the yeah. for the for the more um, you know, ordinary cook, that was the that was the cookbook. You know, for a, yeah. a wedding gift. You're right. Yeah, and and now it's of course you know that's tradition is continuing with with grandkids um, who are are getting married and their grandmothers remember getting it and now there it is on the shelves again. So it was a very smart move to reissue that. And, um, you know, the recipes are, I mean, it's just actually funny to to look at the cute drawings in it and to read the little things like, oh, this is Marjorie's favorite recipe that has, you know, that little storytelling. Oh, Um, the marginalia is always the best stuff in, you know, old cookbooks. When you look in and see the, the, you know, the letters and the envelopes and the ripped out recipes stuck into the page. And then the writings, as you say, in the margin of, you know, you know, how many people had, you know, tried this and how, you know, this was my favorite and so-and-so didn't like it. That You're right. It's Or I added a little extra vanilla to this one. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I, I've heard a few stories, you know, because I've interviewed hundreds of people and, oh, we had this favorite cookbook. And on the back of it is a burner mark because it fell open on a, on a burner that was on or that it was just, it really, the cookbook smelled over the years, you know, it was falling <laughs> apart and it just smelled like an old kitchen because it just absorbed all the odors over the years but nobody was going to part with it no way yeah yeah well and i have to look on the shelf and see you know anyone who has one of those original books that's quite a collector's item i would imagine yes yes yeah and especially if it's in (laughs) if it's in really pristine um shape um but yeah and i mean in i think it's one of those things where it's a comfort to just that it's there maybe you haven't looked at it in years but it's there that's right well she was so popular and of course a company kind of building you know building up around her, around this trademark, that um, for a while there was a, I don't know if there was a museum devoted to her or there she has a place in um, a couple of different museums in Minneapolis, does she not? Yeah, there is a um, really cool museum in Minneapolis called the Mill City Museum, and it's part of the Minnesota Historical Society. And I actually used to work for them back in the day. And what they did is they put a museum inside the ruins of the Washburn uh, a mill, the big mill, oh. um, which had it was was you know basically going to be destroyed, but they decided they would do this adaptive reuse program, and they would teach you know everyone who comes through the doors a little bit about um, milling history and why it is so important and what it all means. And um, certainly, Betty Crocker plays a role in that in that museum, and a lot of people find out quite a bit about Betty that they didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Well, now she and and um, she is not going away anytime fast or anytime soon 
In fact, there's a new encyclopedia of sweets coming out, um, the Oxford Encyclopedia of Sweets coming out by a couple people I've had on my show, uh, Dara Goldstein and Michael Crandall are hard at work at this. And tell me, I think you've been asked to contribute to that? Yes, yes, I'm working on this actually. Right now I'm I'm writing a chapter on Betty Crocker and her relationship to sweets, which is mostly through cake. And Betty has some really interesting stories with cake. You, you might think, oh, how could you find cake interesting? You know, it isn't just cake, but oh no, cake is never just cake. And and, and Betty, um, Betty's people, I should say, it's really what it is, they were always looking for a new and exciting way to serve up cake. And you see this in the recipes and you see this in... Also, the convenience food, but you also see this in discoveries of new ways to make cakes. Um, the chiffon cake is one of the big ones that they were a part of. Um, and you know, they would get letters from people. This is how they knew how, how important cake was. Um, they might um, have broadcast a recipe for chocolate cake, and then they would get a, a, a letter from someone saying, you know, I don't make that chocolate cake, but my neighbor does. Is there any chance that she's going to be able to steal my husband away? <laughs> so there was this interesting love connection. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, you know, the, the cake recipes that would say, like, well, someone got a blue ribbon for this recipe and shared it with us, and we, we worked on it and tweaked it, and this is, someone says that every time they make this at a church function, um, the bachelors always ask about who made the cake. So I get a lot of attention. I decided to share that with you, with you ladies at the Better Cracker Kitchens, things like that. Um, so I think it'll be really fun to just tell the, the, the sweets cake story for the Oxford Companion to Sweets. Well, I look forward to, to reading that entry when that book comes out. Um, and, and Susan, thank you so much for sharing. And I'm sorry for the listeners out there if we busted your myth about who Betty Crocker was and that she really isn't a person. <laughs> but, hey, live with it. She's got a good product. You know, buy the product. Yeah. And she did a lot for us in the kitchen, for sure. Thank you, Susan. It was very interesting. And oh, thank, thank you, you so much. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.